Hey all, we are back. Welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. Um, today, Dolores McElroy is off. She's taking a week off, but we have an honored guest um, <laughs> as our co-host for today, Emily Robbins, our, our very good friend, who's an Anglophile and literature enthusiast who's been taking a morbid interest lately in the romance genre. Um, <laughs> Emily is going to help me. Um, well, together, we're going to work toward what we hope, what we guys should put it, an understanding of the phenomena of Bridgerton, which is the Regency romance that's such a huge hit on Netflix. It's kind of bizarre. Welcome, Emily. Hello there. Thank Hi. you for having me on the podcast. And <laughs> we're so for Indulging all of my confused thoughts about Bridgerton. <laughs> <laughs> we're all confused here, Emily. <laughs> but together we will thrash through this thing. So, so I'm just going to uh, note, for those of you who are following along episode to episode, that this is, in its way, a kind of continuation of last week's special anti-Valentine's Day episode, um, in which we dealt with a book called Peak Libido by Dominic Petman, and, the issue, and applied it to unsexy cinema, um, and, that's inter- and cinema and television. And it's kind of interesting, because today we're talking about Bridgerton, which is getting raised for its supposed red-hot sexiness. Um, and so it's a good one to tackle, I think, just to get the ball rolling to talk about whether it actually is sexy in our in our humble opinions <laughs> what do you think emily well i mean i am really curious to know your thoughts as i've told you before like i have been intrigued by this genre for a while um because it seems like the sort of thing that i should like like mm-hmm. um Bridgerton is based off of a, a romance novel that's like actually a, a genre romance, like trade romance novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, lately this genre has been getting kind of rehabilitated, I guess, in a sense, by big fans mm-hmm. who are trying to make the claim, you know, because it's a genre written for women by women that deals with women's fantasies, that it's mm-hmm. got kind of an inherently feminist thing about it. And mm-hmm. it does sort of deal a lot with like, sort of ways of working through romantic fantasies and plot form which sounds on paper like the exact sort of thing that I would enjoy but I've never really found a romance novel that I think is a good book like as a book Mm -hmm. um and I feel very similarly about Bridgerton Mm -hmm. um and so I've been sort of taking my my thoughts about the romance genre into this but I'm aware that someone who has not been thinking about the romance genre has probably a pretty different perspective going in cold about what this is and what it's trying to do. So I was really curious to hear your thoughts as a, a romance outsider. Oh my God. To- totally freaked out. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know if I was going to make it through the first episode. I mean, I knew I had to, but the first 10 minutes were such a struggle. I was just like, what the hell is going on? And Oh, by the way, everyone who's waiting to hear whether we think it's sexy or not, we, we will get back to that. <laughs> uh, but let me just say, just to frame this, um yeah that that i love genre i'm a huge genre fan i like almost all genre films there's only i think two that i can think of that i that i really have never been able to get into at all one is the war the formulaic war film i like certain war films but because they're not formulaic i've never liked mm-hmm. the formula and i this kind of i guess we can probably put it the romance genre um never been able to get into it especially though anything that takes it very very seriously at its core uh, the, the, this particular kind and the, this i guess we got a subgenre of regency romance which you're going to define shortly but, but just, yeah i mean but i was freaked out by so many things which we can 
get into later. I had the look of the thing, which people are calling candy color. I, it literally was making my eyes bleed. I thought it was hideous throughout. No. The yeah, color we choices. Talk eee. about that, I think. Uh, yeah, we can talk about that <laughs> later, but I, I just hated hated the look of it so much. I, <laughs> uh, and I couldn't get the tone. I would be, but what kept me going was a kind of clinical fascination with what what is the effect? I literally couldn't figure it out. It's so uh -huh. arch in its tone, which sort of points you toward maybe Oscar Wilde satirical qualities to it, but yet it never achieves for me anyway. It's never funny or, or scathing enough quite. It never it never goes quite toward the things that, that surround it at a distance that I really love. So I love gothic, you know, romance, like the Bronte sisters. And I love Jane Austen. Uh, and I love Oscar Wilde. And I love all these things that are off in the distance and uh -huh. sort of being cited or gestured toward. But this doesn't seem to be any of them. So so we'll get into that. But then But then let's get to the sexy question. Because actually, after all, this is what people, if you ask, you know, first person to talk to me about this show was my sister. And she uh -huh. was nervously saying, have you watched this? It's really trashy, but I'm so compelled. And she, she felt apologetic. And I immediately oh, thought, oh, there's got to be a million sex. So sure enough, there, there are, are. Sex scenes, yes. There are. I do not find them sexy because to me, they seem so try hard and they seem incredibly similar. Um, yeah. And that it seems like there's always this you you have to have full swoony ecstatic passion. Someone's always got to be throwing somebody up against a wall or onto a bed, and there's always got to be clothes ripped. Even even you know with with the secondary couple that's not the typical virgin maiden with yeah, aristocratic yeah. rake. Even the secondary couple that have been a couple apparently for years, same same kind of sex over and over. I mean nobody has lazy desultory. I'm used to you. <laughs> got to no. say there's, that's not a thing. Um, but yeah, I'll tell you, and this, this just you know shows that I'm I don't belong in this genre. To <laughs> me, the sexiest scenes are the boxing scenes. They're these oh. two extraordinarily hot guys. Yeah, let <laughs> me guys, tell you, that's intentional. Oh. Just so you know, it's <laughs> oh, not no. like an accident. <laughs> oh no, it's clearly meant to be super erotic. They're both stripped to the waist. They're they're both just gorgeous. The one is the lead guy who's playing yeah. the Duke, uh, and, and I the other is he's a, very hot. <laughs> he's super. He's very very hot. He he also gets you through the show, <laughs> um, or me through, I should say. Um, and the, the guy who's a bare knuckle bra brawler in, in, by profession, and they they're in there fighting. But the hilarious, surreal, wonderful part of it is that they're literally talking about the Duke's courtship. <laughs> while they're fighting so it'll mm -hmm. be like saying did you ask her to dance and stuff while they're wailing away at each other no it's let hilarious. me tell you in, in the romance genre the only time that the two main characters will ever talk to their friends about anything is to talk about their relationship basically yeah, yeah that's you like gotta the be reason on why point. friend characters exist so. but it's hilarious because the brawler of course is this formidably hugely muscled you know supposed to be scary dude and that they're having this conversation just beautiful. God, those guys are hot. So anyway, that's the sexy part for me. I, I was sorry there weren't more boxing scenes. Yeah. Well, it's funny. The sex scenes, like, I think I read them pretty differently from you because I was thinking of the, the kind of purpose that they were playing yeah. in the formula. Um, and so the, the sex scenes between the two, the, so there's like the older brother character and his, um, what, opera singer implied kind of prostitute woman fiance. Yeah. Um, that would not have been at all in the original book because the book would have focused pretty much entirely on the two main romantic mm -hmm. interests and not had any other point of view characters. So they kind of threw that in there, I think, just to get more sex scenes in the show. Oh, I didn't um, know that, really. That's a made-up... Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm not, I don't quote me. I haven't read these books, so I don't oh. know like everything absolutely mm-hmm. for sure. But like no romance book would have multiple points of views like that. That's just not how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I was sort of like those sex scenes are like completely, I kind of just ignored them. I think I kind of just like <laughs> glossed over them because <laughs> I was like, whatever, this is just like they're meeting a quota or something. <laughs> um, and it does seem like they're very timed. You can only go so long. Yeah. There's got to be a sex scene. Yeah. And they're, right. they're definitely like designed, I think, because this couple isn't going to be like an end game couple. Like they're, they're not going to get together in the end. So I think they were designed to like not make you too invested in the couple. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the big question for me was how they were going to handle like the romancy romance sex scene of like the first time the Duke and Daphne sleep Daphne, together, yeah. which was just so like over the top, but not over the top enough to be funny. Yeah, as I think you said exactly. Like, what's <laughs> that, my reaction supposed to be? <laughs> I can't remember. I don't know. I'm sure you didn't pick up on this because huh. you are not up with current pop music but there's a lot of um the soundtrack has a lot of like violin-y renditions oh, of current horrible. pop songs i mean yeah. i didn't know they were current pop songs but i did note that the music was terrible just yeah awful. so that i mean that's uh. that's their one like most winky moment that like um almost approaches i don't think i'd call it parody or satire or anything like uh. that but just sort of like you know haha we know this isn't really historical like you can relax and not take this too seriously kind of thing i guess mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they do that during the sex scene too, which yeah. is just like the whole, the whole mood of it is just sort of like, I guess it's designed to put people at ease in a certain way that mm-hmm. like, I just, yeah, this is, I guess this gets to the crux of what I can't wrap my head around. It's like, it's taking itself too seriously and not at all seriously at the same time in such a way that you're just like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's I, very strange toned and it's really for me it's embodied by having julie andrews be the voiceover person um who who you know is sort of represented as lady what is her name lady whistlebottom <laughs> lady Whistle, what's her name <laughs> Whistle lady Whistle Whistle i think it is yeah yes they're supposed to be um uh someone who's writing up all the scandal that's occurring during this one you know season the season when all the debutante types they don't call them that then i don't think but come out and there's a marriage market thing. They all go to balls and everything and see if they can match up, pair up. Um, someone, and they nobody knows the true identity of this person, and it's, and it's one of the more intriguing aspects, actually, of the show. You kind of get so you really want to know. Who is this? Who, which char- of these characters is leading a double life, um, reporting on all scans? So anyway, Julie Andrews uh, voices, does the voiceover narration kind of in the persona. Um, and she's very grand dame, which has become a Julie Andrews thing. If you ever see her do interviews or something, it's weird. Like all of her youthful humor and liveliness is gone. And mm-hmm. now she's like queen stick up the ass to the point where like, <laughs> what happened to you, Julie? Who hurt you? <laughs> um, because, so now that is this incredibly arch, rather heavy, heavily sort of supposed to be satirical, but there's nothing funny about her delivery. Um, Kind yeah. of voiceover that that again you I, you just I wind up over analyzing because I'm like I'm not sure where this is landing how is this supposed to land I don't get it but then I'm not a fan yeah I mean it's definitely supposed to sort of like evoke creativity in the genre I feel like mm-hmm. without ever like getting too um, 
basically it's not allowed to have too much fun with its own creativity. Like mm. you're, you're able to sort of make certain moves within the genre where you're like, oh, that's like a cool, clever thing you could do in this genre. But it, you can't let that take too much of the focus away mm. from the main point, which is the whole romance formula playing itself out. Well, okay, so, great. So perfect segue to, you know, maybe you could explain some of the basic uh, okay. of the, the Regency romance subgenre. Yeah, I well, so I know the basic romance formula based on this book called Romancing the Beat, which is um, like a book that is a kind of how-to book for romance writers that a lot of um, people I know of who are trying to write romance for Amazon, which, by mm -hmm. the way, is like a completely different genre than this and way more like even dumbed down <laughs> regular <laughs> romance um so i'm not talking about that but that's how i heard mm. about this book um mm. it basically just lays out very generally what the romance formula is and it a lot of romance movies do follow this formula mm -hmm. to some degree um but it's mostly related to the books um and it sort of follows this pattern of the characters not liking each other initially then there's some often kind of contrived reason why they have to spend a lot of time together or work together. Often it's like they have to pretend to be in a relationship, as in with Bridgerton, they find that there's some mutual benefit to pretending to be in a relationship or there's mm -hmm. like a marriage of convenience or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, once they spend more time together, they get to know each other a little bit more and realize they are different than they initially thought. Um, the characters get together enough to have sex usually midpoint in the book um well, that's what and you mean a, by this phrase i see written here sex at 60 i was like 60 yeah. is that referring to years old that can't be right <laughs> <laughs> that's a different genre i haven't tried anything <laughs> you mean minute 60 oh my god that's that's yeah very good to know okay. i guess yeah not, not because 60 wouldn't be minute 60 i think it is Halfway. minute 60 in a minute weird way because like even though okay. i haven't seen many movies do this hmm. there must be some because that's it, yeah it comes from screenplays apparently but mm. that oh, it okay. also in romancing the beat they called it sex at 60 even though it's <laughs> wow. not 60 in a romance book whatever anyway uh, okay. um yeah so they have sex they realize that like whatever the the wound is each character has a very specific psychological wound that needs to be resolved in the context of a relationship um, mm -hmm. They realize that just having sex with each other does not solve all of their problems because they still have this unresolved insecurity, <laughs> whatever, right. um, that leads them to doubt whether the other person really is right for them. Mm -hmm. They break up. Um, they kind of separately, usually with the help of their friends who, again, only exist for this purpose, <laughs> um, work through whatever mm -hmm. their issues are. Um, there's usually a grand gesture moment at the end, which... Um, the Bridgerton one was weird. I don't know if it was really a grand gesture, more just like a weird like moment of sappiness. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then there's a reconciliation and they've like realized that the reason why they had their psychological wound was because they were not sharing themselves fully with each other. And now they have, and now mm. they can <clears throat> almost always go on to have a idyllic marriage forever and have many, many kids and, you know, the cycle of life. Continues. And that's interesting in and of itself that you have to indicate the many, many kids thing, you know, which is not, yeah. not the normal like movie romance, if you think Hollywood, yeah. the, the, the classic that really, out on the final uh -huh. kiss or the marriage at most, but never the, did they have many, many kids? <laughs> yeah, the kids thing seems to be such a staple of the genre. That wow. really threw me off 
Like that really. Do you I mean think that's Regency my most... or romance overall? Like I think a, a most larger. romance. I mean, there's there's a lot of different subcategories of romance, so I don't want to like loop them all into the same thing. Right. Like more modern romances usually don't do this. Like okay, mo- but if it's one, one, one set in contemporary times and ones that are more like chick lit where there is a little bit more character development, that right. seems to be the main difference between like strict romance and chick lit is that there's more character development. Right. Um, and um the the traditional romance ending is called a happily ever after h e a it actually mm-hmm. has an abbreviation so there is an implied like okay now they will be happy forever mm-hmm. um but in in a more um contemporary kind of more <clears throat> slightly cynical romance they might call that happily for now mm. um where they just like get together but they don't have to get married necessarily mm. um <clears throat> but so far that's pretty spot on for bridgerton <laughs> yeah yeah much i mean bridget spot on. and then, then then there's you know there's the rake character even i know that there's got to be a rake character <laughs> who has to be reformed who's the lead guy right that's that's a regency thing. yeah 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 well and it's like you know as i i think i told you in my long ramble about one of your past episodes i was mm-hmm. reading this book called the dangerous lover gothic villains byronism and the 19th century seduction mm-hmm. narrative Mm-hmm. Um, so many of my favorite things, <laughs> which, which was talking about how the, the reformed rate character kind of comes out of this Byronic tradition. Um, obviously a very kind of, I would say, I think it's safe to say watered down version perhaps mm-hmm. in Bridgerton in the sense that he doesn't nearly have as much like dangerousness as a true Byronic or mm. Gothic villain Definitely at all. Not. Um, no, but, but it kind of comes from the same sort of impulse of like, there's a man who has an unresolved, you know, wound of the psyche that affects his self-image that makes him think like, I cannot meet the expectations of a, a pure woman or whatever. And then she has to redeem him. Yeah. So <laughs> is that, is, is there anything more to her character than that? Or, I mean, is she supposed to be, is it a new iteration that she has to be spunky and she has to be able to punch a man and knock him out? Oh flat? yeah. That, that, that kind of thing. Girl power nonsense that we call feminism now. It drives me mad. That is at least in terms of what people want now, that's definitely a requirement. Yeah. Like Seems spunky like. heroine is one of those like keywords that you put in your Ugh. description to sell the book type of thing. <laughs> But like uh, spunky, the this is one of the biggest problems in writing romance, and actually this community of people that I was kind of immersed in was talking about this as an issue. Like if the girl, the girl has a very narrow range of motion in terms of what she can do. If she like fights too much with the guy, or has like a moment that seems a little too petty, mm-hmm. or you know has psychological foibles that take her out of moral righteousness. Basically, I think. Um, female readers of the romance genre tend to react fairly badly to that and Mm -hmm. think like, Oh, I don't like this character anymore. Um, which makes sense, I guess. And if the, if the romance formula really is supposed to be like virtuous woman redeems Mm. the ills of the world embodied in this, you know, dark wounded man, Mm. then yeah, it's, if, if it's that kind of like a power fantasy, then having the woman be a real character kind of breaks that up and Mm. i was actually like prepared to be more annoyed at the daphne character than Mm. i was because i thought that they actually did sort of or they almost could have played her insecurity more 
relatably and not just like tried to keep her in that morally righteous zone Mm. um but then this is how this all blows up in the controversy part which is that like they don't really delve into her that much as if she was an actual character it's kind of treated on the surface level when she does this betraying rapey action well yeah the closest they get and you know they have a situation where they can display some qualities onto other female characters there there are a couple of sisters there's another Mm -hmm. family that's having their own problems there are several daughters all and a cousin a female cousin who are all coming out the season to try to find husbands at the same time so we have a range of female characters that it seems like you can displace so Mm -hmm. like the, the younger sister of Daphne, what's her name again? Eloise? Eloise. Eloise, yeah. Has lots of the qualities that are clearly meant to be super likable. You know, she really hates the whole idea. Mm-hmm. She's desperately hoping Daphne won't find someone to, so, because if Daphne doesn't marry, she'll have to go out the next year, and Eloise presumably won't have to. They'll wait till Daphne's married off. Um, she wants to be, she wants to be accomplished in some more meaningful sense than putting needlepoint and how to play the pianoforte. <laughs> she yeah. wants to be a writer. She wants to be something. She wants to go to university. She wants all these things. So she yeah. and she's very modern in her too modern, frankly. I mean, she does yes. all those kind of loose, casual movements that would have been trained out of her. Uh-huh. She does, but she does all. Her hair is all unkempt and hanging. All of these <laughs> things that would have been whipped into shape long since in reality, presumably, yeah. unless it was a very eccentric family, um, <laughs> are all on the sister. But so Daphne has the bears, you know, the, her problem, at least initially, is she bears the burden of having to be perfect. And at first she makes a big splash at court. The queen says she is perfection or flawless or something. Yeah. And then something happens to collapse that almost immediately, having to do with her own family dynamic. And then she's got to try to recover ground because apparently nothing less than a, a certain notion of female perfection will do. And it's being presented as they're rich and everything else as a huge, huge burden and problem and blah, blah, blah. And so, so that's a lot of it. And, and, she, and of course, much is made of how the rake knows everything of the world, especially sexually. Yeah. She, of course, women know nothing of the world. Women are kept in a state of appalling ignorance. That's quite true. And this has all sorts of consequences for her. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of fun in some ways that she gets to be angry about being in the lower position in the power dynamic in the sense that she like is being kept ignorant about sex basically like that's Mm. the main crux of what gets them into this situation which is always i think at play in these types of narratives is that there's like a power dynamic struggle um and Mm. so within the genre conventions it's actually sort of interesting this move that is made where she tries to like reclaim her sexual power um in the sex scene that is the controversy which i should probably put a little bit of yes let's describe this so a huge controversy that. especially <laughs> online right blew up yes. over yes the, is it what it was i mean episode six i think it's six, six. yeah um encounter between the now married duke and yeah yeah carry on so w- this is like the the point where they're going to have their breakup moment because they've gotten together. They thought that they were each marrying each other as a sacrifice to help the other person for reasons I don't totally remember, honestly. Um, it's convoluted. Like, it's convoluted. Um, <laughs> Not hugely but, believable. But he's, but he's, he's marrying her to save her reputation right. because he couldn't resist kissing her in the garden, but in he still garden. didn't want to marry her. But then he's ruined her reputation, so he has to marry her. But then yeah. he's like, no, I cannot marry you because I cannot give you children. And that right. is the most important thing to you in the world. And she says, no, 
we will still get married. I will like give up this chance to have children because it will save my reputation, basically. So they go down the aisle thinking that they're each like entering into a marriage that neither of them wants because they're kind of forcing each other into it or something. Mm-hmm. And then on their wedding night, they confess that they actually do love each other and that that's why they've been acting so weird this whole time. It's so ridiculous. Um, this is, can I just chime in and say this is one of the yeah. hardest things to endure. And most people know it from <laughs> just regular romantic comedies where there has to be some ridiculous reason why they can't get together, which if they had one conversation, it yes. would no longer be a problem. So this is, this takes this to just the maximum of like yeah. building up problems, which you know are clearly not really real problem but anyway which is also i think intentionally part of the genre too, oh, I think is it that, totally like pe- totally. people want like the result of the problem to be there and they want the idea of the problem and the mm-hmm. distance to be evoked because obviously that is like key to any like move towards eroticism at all like what did they call it romance is like i can't remember the exact formula but like, there has to be delay there has to be yes. separation all of that has to be there But a lot of the times in the romance genre, especially like nowadays, I feel like where they know that people are reading for genre conventions Mm -hmm. and are able to be a little winky about it, they're sort of like doing convoluted, not totally believable problems on purpose to be like, Mm -hmm. you know, don't worry, this is going to get resolved. We all know. So like, it's okay if it's a little ridiculous because this isn't really the point. Anyway. And and let me just note that, that we should always pay a little respect to the agony of the genre writer. <laughs> You're almost <laughs> always going to come to a genre when it's already fully operational and has been for a while. And that means you've got to come up with something that's a new iteration, but yeah. still satisfies. The agony over trying to figure out how that's going to work. I mean, think of when it works great. Pride and Prejudice, probably the standard. Mr. Darcy. How can you have Mr. Darcy go from impossible, <laughs> almost unbearable prick? <laughs> There's no way she wants to get together to he's the most wonderful man in the world in the end and make it work. Somehow she makes it work. But don't yeah. try this at home, kids, because it's going to be super, super <laughs> No, I have to say, I do have a lot of respect for romance writers because I feel like they really have to, like, try to be creative within, like, the bounds of a very small cage, mm. kind of. Mm. Um, and I yes. really do think, like, a, a lot of people I've heard who write romance are very logical and think of their stories almost like mathematical formulas. Wow, because yeah. you really do have to, like, put the right sort of elements together in the right combination to get a certain result. So I, I think they have to be very, people have to be very intelligent to, to write romance and do it correctly, but it's still sort of like, I personally would prefer if some of these conflicts came more from character idiosyncrasies and just like slightly more developed characters rather than having to come up with like the newest weird convoluted (laughs) situation and there's Um, a doozy in bridgerton just a doozy (laughs) (laughs) but anyway carry on yeah so um or i don't know i mean it's not really that convoluted it's more just like well you in in bridgerton i feel like it's more just like they go for the whole like i cannot resist you sort of thing which is like really you can't like you can't just not kiss her in the middle of the well, no, that, Garden. I think it's clear why you're supposed to buy that. It's more like you have to believe in the unbreakable vow, you know, that's the reason oh, oh, why. His, his I meant, I meant the resistance and the yes. problem that has right. to be resolved. And, and why he can't just say, I made an unbreakable, he can't, yeah. for the longest time, she that, doesn't even that, know that, that there was a vow. 
Yeah. Anyway. So okay. So so anyway. background is the re- the reason why this guy doesn't want to have kids or can't have kids. Um, oof, and it gets into the racial dynamics too. Is that in this world of multiracial utopia? You think sort of on the face of it. Um, yes, it comes so out. If that, you don't know that about Bridgerton, at least initially yes. it looks like colorblind casting, but then it turns out at least partially not to be when there's a long explanation of why um, the black characters are on an equal level with white white characters in you know the the hierarchy. They're aristocrats. They're dukes. There's the queen is black, etc. Carry on. Yeah. So so it, within the context of this world, which I don't think is at all meant to be historically plausible um because the queen is openly black or biracial she has managed to elevate the status of a bunch of black people and given them titles and all this sort of thing and so the dukes the duke who is black his father um basically treated him really terribly as a child and thought that he wasn't living up to his expectations because he had a stutter um and basically kind of disowned him in this sort of over-the-top melodramatic way because he was like we should explain why though because because he the claim is you know only by being is a completely extraordinary figure his father thinks is is how i'm holding these lands as a black man so it actually is given a racial explanation we have to be extraordinary we have to be perfect yes so that in in, and in the the book i think the the dynamic between the father and son must have been pretty similar but the the families were all white so there wasn't a racial aspect to this but it was still the guy's wound is that he hates his father for the way that he's treated him and vows to never have children and carry on the family line because carrying on the family line is the thing that matters the most to the dad. And this is a very common thing in romance where the the male character has to get over this wound of the father thing and kind of <coughs> overcomes a certain patriarchal attitude that's been, that he's been struggling with. Um, so this is why our hero doesn't want to carry on the cycle of life and sort of get together with any women in in the proper romantic way that would result in children um, is because he has this sort of daddy issue hang up. Um, So that comes to a head with Daphne because she really wants to have kids, but because she believes that he physically can't have kids because that's sort of what he's implied um she sort of thinks that they're in their marriage she's like okay i'm willing to make this sacrifice because i love you so much and you're Um, infertile and it isn't your fault so exactly yeah yeah um but when she finds out that he has apparently been this sorry (laughs) he's been pulling out he's been pulling out (laughs) (laughs) but she doesn't know anything about sex so she thinks it's normal for a long time until she finally has the woman her sir her house isn't it her maid her maid tells her explain to her what how exactly do you have a baby which is a huge thing throughout with all almost all the young female young women characters they're all constantly going how exactly yeah yeah so when she finds this out, the the reason why this is upsetting to her, which I don't think is spelled out explicitly in the show, but I think is not too difficult to figure out, is largely the fact that he has been lying to her and not kind of revealing the fullness of himself to her in the way that she thought that he was because of this lie. 
And that's like sex is in romance is often a metaphor for this like giving over to the other. So ejaculating inside of her would be more of a giving himself over to her and would have even their power dynamic in a certain way. And now she's kind of realizing that she's on the, the short end of the power dynamic stick because he's been hiding this information about how sex works from her. <laughs> what a way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Power dynamic stick. That's good. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Innuendo not intended there, I guess. Um, or was it? I don't know. Or was it? What Dr. Freud say? Um, but so the, the point being, it's not just about her wanting to have kids, although I think that's the thing that comes across most in the show. It is also like about their power dynamic, which then leads to her taking sexual advantage of him in a way that has been very categorically called rape by some people on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, which it probably is by the technical definition, um, where they're in the middle of having sex and she decides that she's going to get on top and kind of not let him pull out this time. And he tells her kind of wait, wait in a breathy way while she's doing this. Um, and then once he's finished inside of her, he's sort of like, what have you done? Oh my God. And then she's like, ha, there was a thing that you were keeping from me basically. Um, and so that's kind of this big moment of they've both apparently mutually betrayed each other in this situation. But as readers on the internet have pointed out, um, I mean, first of all, we're in a, an era that's slightly different from the era that this book was originally written. Um, and the, the sexual advantage taking of the woman by the man in the original book was much more explicit, by the way. Like, I think he was drunk at the time, if I'm remembering correctly. And she kind of, like, initiates having sex with him while he's drunk and can't really, mm -hmm. doesn't have all of his faculties about him mm -hmm. in the book. Um, so, I mean, there's been debates about whether this iteration was better or worse, whether it was less rapey or more rapey. Um, the racial dynamics definitely come into it too, because, you know, the whole thing is about them trying to negotiate an evening out of their power dynamic in a way that's obviously not very healthy um, and would have benefited from conversation. Conversation, but, that been but you can't less, have less too dramatic. much conversation in the genre because <laughs> it ruins the whole thing. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, it, I mean, it, it is sort of like they're trying to make these these power dynamic questions embodied in actions that like nobody would want to read a genre where everything was sorted out by conversation obviously <laughs> but it, it it does sort of like it, you can do it more or less realistically and this is one of those times where you're just like really you this is what you decided to do about the situation but like i don't know they kind of sell it like she's angry it's kind of a spur of a moment decision i guess in the way that they're portraying it the thing that makes this well there's two things that make this difficult is that mm -hmm. the romance novel does have this sort of implied didacticism about it about like how to have a correct relationship mm -hmm. like it's supposed to be kind of giving you clues about how to have a correct correct relationship mm -hmm. and so having any character nowadays take sexual advantage of another character is obviously going to be hugely controversial in like you know if people i think subconsciously are looking to the romance genre to be morally correct especially because more and more lately it's become like more and more woke and trying to be rehabilitated as like the serious feminist genre. Which is what, so, what a task. I, I, I'm yeah. even baffled by that. 
Because it's just like, why even do it then? I mean, this is this isn't this a genre that's you know they, it was always called a bodice ripper, because it was almost always going to be the other way. It was almost always going to have rapey qualities, but associated mm-hmm. with the man, the more traditional rapey qualities. Yeah. Why even go to Regency romances about virginal, you know, girls who know nothing and rakes who know everything, and you know, deliberately going for why keep. Why, if we if there's a concern about wokeness and feminism, and again, the author, what's her name, Julie Julia Quinn, something like that. I cannot remember. Yes, I think that's I think. it. I, re- I read a little bit and then forgot everything. But anyway, she, she <laughs> very strenuously claims to be a feminist, you know. But, but you mm-hmm. know, why, what draws you to this genre if you're a feminist? Because it's this endless well, scenario that's already got built-in elements that are just like, really, aren't we done with this? Can we never be done with this? Well, so here's. I think people have not fully worked out the full implications of the romance genre within the romance community. And no offense to them because they, I've heard some very in-depth scholarly conversations about this. Mm. Um, and I mean this among casual readers, I'm about to talk about maybe a, a article in the romance what, journal of popular romance studies, mm. which is much more academic. Um, but I don't think the casual romance reader really understands how like difficult it is to combine what has been called uh, the didactic impulses of romance with the amatory impulses of romance. The didactic being like, this is how we redeem society and like how we heal our psychological wounds through relationships, which is not always a bad thing. I don't think I've seen it done well-ish in romance stories that are not necessarily part of the romance genre i would say um but then there's also the amatory impulse which is basically based on sexual fantasies um that are not really morally correct at their core they come from like deeper psychological impulses and that's where like rape fantasy is very very common and very popular in romance traditionally well but there's such a disproportionate focus on one essentially one fantasy (laughs) over and over and over it's not like it's a huge range of fantasies it's one Mm -hmm. fantasy yeah but go ahead well and that i think that comes down to like yeah it's a very specific power dynamic fantasy there are other versions there's not it's not always the sort of reformed rape type type Mm. of thing um but you know rape is very symbolic of a certain type of power in um the the bodice ripper forced seduction kind Mm -hmm. of narrative and there have been lots of theories about why that is Mm -hmm. um but from like a literary perspective it sort of signifies this um kind of force knowing of the other like the in the romance genre they're always trying to come to a full knowing of the other person uh like i was just talking about with daphne she's kind of felt like that part part of the otherness of her spouse was being withheld from her through the sex act and so she was kind of trying to claim knowledge of that otherness um that's that's often um according to this article parody of love the narrative uses of rape in popular romance Mm -hmm. um the 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 rape act is often kind of serves the purpose of this mistaken attempt out of a craving for the knowing of the other to force that onto 
in, into the dynamic of their relationship. Um, the, the author of this article, Angela R. Toscano, um, talks about this as being a metaphor for the violence of falling in love, where there's this sort of prodding of the other person trying to get into your psyche, basically, and how you negotiate that. And part of that is a sort of feeling, I think, psychologically of like being invaded is 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 like made metaphor in this rape that's like also seductive because it's sort of like you want to disclose and give self-knowledge but you're afraid to do so in the act of falling in love so the, the rape is kind of has this erotic charge because it's sort of a metaphor for the helplessness of being at the mercy of the other person and and wanting to be known by them and wanting to be within their power and have them you know pleasure you or whatever but but then but, also the but, danger inherent in that too well yeah but but at the same time that you if you try to make that a metaphor why the literalness of wanting always to go back to the maiden and the rape <laughs> so that the man has all the sexual knowledge and power and the woman has none and you that's the scenario that's over and over and over and over okay and, i think it's because it's, it's easy it like well, it's People already available in the culture, and it already has historical truth. But, and you're right. If you if you're going to make this pleasurable for millions of readers, and they're not going to, it's a genre thing. It's got to it's got to make people happy somewhere, <laughs> or they're not coming back. <laughs> uh, um, if that's got to be said, you can't deal with, in other words, a really feminist take on the horror of that. If you if you read, you oh know, no, <laughs> the, the Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, you know, Vindication of the Rights of Women, and she talks about the true horror. She's an exception and she's been educated and has some worldly knowledge. She looks around at her fellow women and, and truly looks at these monstrously stunted beings who have no development. They're, they're, kept, they're kept at this hideous case of arrested development. They're, they are childlike and in the worst way. They can never not be childlike. Um, and they're, they're going to be put into adult roles to raise other children. And it's just this she, she paints such mm-hmm. a portrait of a living nightmare. <laughs> that only education and a whole radical rethinking of women as real people who can come to adulthood in a real way will ever solve that that she really brings you could make a horror movie of the of her descriptions of what women are like in general mm-hmm. in her society. Yeah. So obviously you can't do that because no one's gonna be happy about it. But my question is, I guess it's just the basics of, of why doesn't this die? Just as 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 especially for women writers who want to be feminists, I realize, you know, I'm, I'm arguing against the obvious practicality of the genre exists. It's popular. It's been popular for a million years. It continues to be popular. And that's why people write for it. Um, but at the same time, it's a little maddening to be like, why try to reform this genre when it, it's like beyond reform yeah. and it's and, so, and it's basic and vigorous. But so I'm, the I'm basic- asking you to say something impossible. I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> no, no, a I have I have thoughts about this. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. There, I mean, I think that the this is a thing that I have an issue with too. Is that the the genre is trying to reconfigure itself much in the same way that I think people's erotic fantasies nowadays are trying to reconfigure themselves because erotic fantasies that used to be private and sort of not explicitly acknowledged but implicitly thought of. as being separate from reality are now being kind of dragged into the light and examined on the internet and held up to the standards of me too and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um and so there's these conflicting impulses always within romance of like romance wants to be a fem a feminine 
um, power fantasy. So like on the surface, that seems to align with a certain type of feminism, but at the same time, right. it's taking just as erotic admit, pleasures on, in subverting. Sorry? Yeah. Why not just say that the real charge is if you're a contemporary woman <laughs> in most contemporary cultures, you have all the weight on you of being, uh, what? Fully, well, if not empowered, because most of us have no power, but for other reasons <laughs> um, that have to do with the massive gender inequality, which still exists, um, but it's certainly better. But I just isn't isn't the real trip that you're like, you know what? Sometimes I'm so tired. I just want to mentally regress to a point that I'm a childlike <laughs> creature and somebody else takes over everything and tutors I mean, me and everything. And I could just lay back and be like. I just lay back and think of England and then I have a, a, a massive orgasm and it was all done for me. I didn't have to take any responsibility. Isn't well, that the more likely move? Well, fantasy. first of all, you can, you can never fully, even within the genre, I don't think you can never have a character who's mm -hmm. fully acquiescing in that way because that loses erotic charge too. Like part of the erotic charge does come from the, the power struggle of, of this succumbing, but then wanting to fight back the, that whole type of thing. Mm. Um, not fight back literally in the sense of like fight back against rape always, but like fight back against the, I, it, the whole push and pull of, mm. of the dynamics of a relationship, I guess, is just like, you know, wanting to be your own independent, strong, whatever self. And then also having a certain level of dependency on another person, um, that whole thing. But I think that there's a struggle right now with people wanting to be, feminist mm -hmm. wanting to have that sort of strong independence like no man's gonna mess with me type of thing and not not sort of tolerating any kind of dark side of fantasy unless it's contextualized in very specific ways like bdsm where there's a bunch of rules and we're like we've negotiated everything mm -hmm. ahead of time and so we know that it's quote-unquote safe even though it's not there's lots of sort of abusive sex scandals stuff within the BDSM community as well. Um, but so there's a tension between I'm reading this genre to be feminist and as a power fantasy. And therefore within this power fantasy, I retain my autonomy the whole time. Mm -hmm. And the sense that no, the romance genre is about the pleasure of breaking down autonomy and breaking down power to a certain degree. And how do you come to grips with that as a modern feminist person who cares about retaining the power of, women like are women allowed mm -hmm. the room to succumb still and how does that work with men you know in in this rape scenario in which a woman takes sexual advantage of a man in Bridgerton is the man afforded that same sensitivity when it comes to his barriers being broken down it's sort of all he, I, I think something that annoys me about Bridgerton is that and in a lot of romances that the man isn't often allowed to feel the same level of betrayal by a woman as the woman often feels by a man, because traditionally that wouldn't make sense. It's trying to subvert a patriarchal setup in such mm -hmm. a way that there isn't much opportunity for the woman to really betray the man. But in this case, there kind of is, especially with the fact that he is sort of racially inferior in some senses within this world that they've set up or mm -hmm. his racial social status is tenuous they could have really explored a much more mutual version of betrayal in a way that might have felt more modern mm -hmm. but i think a lot of 
female romance readers are still kind of insecure about that, insecure about taking on the responsibility of having the power to act in that more traditional man invasion of privacy type of way, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, it's still th- kind of equivocating I, over going further with that. I, know. I guess I feel like the genre is kind of stuck in this, in this like girl power, the world yeah. is against me. I will fight back against it kind of place with my spunkiness. With my <laughs> it's spunkiness. already light. It's already, that's, it's always power light. So light that it's puffy. It's, it's just, yeah. I mean, literally she punches a man who's, you know, of course taking, taking advantage of her in the garden. <laughs> She's always having to walk off to the garden. So anything can happen, of course, because, you know, nothing can happen in the ballroom. So she has to keep wandering out. <laughs> and, and so anyway, some, some awful villain. And she, yeah, again, she has to punch because that's what's going to do. And you're just like, it's just immediately like, where would you get a punch like that? There's just no way. <laughs> yeah. And you, but you have to accept there's certain, there's, you, there's such recognizable qualities of the spunky, the spirit, the resistant, whatever, mm-hmm. the defiant that you rec- you see them in Disney movies now, you know, <laughs> now that they started yeah. doing spunky princesses and spunky this, spunky that. They all, I hate the, the word thing. spunky. I never want to hear it again. Worst word. It's the worst, but it unfortunately is applicable. So it's almost yeah. always very spirited speeches to the men. Well, I am not interested in you in the least. And, and well, <laughs> you as a rake are naturally bleh. And they're, they're just always bleh. Yeah. You do not realize what it is for a woman to have to bleh. And they're, yeah, I know. it's very, very prescribed. Um, and yeah, it, it annoys me so much because it's like a evocation or gesturing towards mm. works that are just way better than what they're like. It's, it's very much like, nothing would compel me to marry you, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bennett sort of thing, or like, I am no bird, no cage ensnares me in Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. But like, those things actually had context around them that like made them so this much better the than the soundbite, you know? <laughs> but it's the nakedness that you can see all the move, the behind the scenes moves. Being like, well, now you got to have the line that goes like this. And now she has to draw herself up to her full height and look spunky and then stride away. And now, and that is, that makes it, yeah. Unless you're a well, real diehard fan. And apparently there must be millions because Bridgerton is doing gangbusters. Oh, yeah. Well, and there's been so many things I've read about how the romance genre is like the biggest thing going in publishing right now. Um, I do think a lot of that is like there, there's, um, a thing happening with romance right now that will hopefully continue in a good way that was happening with like the YA genre and a lot of like fantasy or dystopian or mm. other things in the publishing industry where there's um, a genre that was kind of trashy and not doing a whole lot is now being read by people who didn't usually read it. So like readers mm. like me are now starting to like wonder what the whole romance genre is about. And there's been some sort of like crossover books that have mm. been published that are like, romance but a little more substantial because people like me are picking up these books and being like what the heck is going on (laughs) Um, well and there's also you got to get out of the hetero trap but you know bridgerton does this total fake out where they have one of the brothers that made me so annoyed i was like oh are they actually gonna have to say that they're doing everything to indicate that 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 there's this artist who's who's luring luring one of the brothers out of his kind of you know annoyingly straight respectful lifestyle you're into his artist studio where there are orgies and everything else. And you think, oh, they're going to be a couple. And instead he just gets them all, you know, he gets them into the orgy scene 
And then the guy picks out, you know, a woman <laughs> who's yeah. not fully respected. You're like, well, what was all that? It was all just a fake out. Oh, total fake. Yeah. That, and, they, and they've been called out for queer baiting, I think. In oh, yeah. Sense, too. <laughs> they but I was like, hey, shocking. <laughs> if, if they did a season, they're not going to. I'm pretty sure they like mm. this brother character gets together with a girl in the books. And I'm sure they wouldn't mm. ruin a whole season for women by having a. Well, I mean, they should, though. Women like watching gay men together. Oh, come on, if they, exactly. I want those two to still get together well, for her, that one woman to be a beard, you know? <laughs> it was totally headed that way. It was really, that really was shocking. I was done. Yeah. But yeah, I, I would be very surprised if they were bold enough to do that. They would definitely lose a chunk of their audience. I think they think. I don't know if that's actually true. I think they've, they, you know, already by casting black characters, they're signaling that they're trying to be woke. So why not use a gay couple? My, why not just do something? let's and we might as well go on to the other controversy it's not i don't think it's getting I don't, as far as i know anyway but there's some controversy over the over the the handling of oh there's of plenty of race. controversy plenty, about okay, the race okay, yeah, yeah yeah is, is it as much as over over episode six um i mean i don't, I don't, I don't totally know i just know i haven't actually read into it as much as about the the rape controversy mm-hmm. but yeah the article that you're about to talk mm-hmm. about is very fascinating. Go on. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I'll just, it's, it's called Why Did Bridgerton Erase Haiti? It's by Mar- Marlena L. Doubt, and she's, um, let me find her. She's professor of African and diaspora studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of Prophets of Haiti, Race and the Literary History of the Haitian Revolution in the Atlantic World, and the forthcoming book, The First and Last King of Haiti. And she's she's taking exception on a number of grounds for the way that the race issue is handled, at least with black characters. One thing that occurred to me definitely when I was watching, as I said, I, at first I thought we were doing colorblind fantasy land sometime in the 1800s total fantasy. And I thought, okay, because, you know, there it's not just black characters and white characters. There are clearly, you know, Asian characters. You can't really get a good mm. look at them because you're blowing by them so fast. Very few have any tiny bit parts or just extras. You're seeing people of color uh, from various, you know, backgrounds and antecedents and, and sort of vaguely registering them. And so and then that makes you want, but then now suddenly starting in episode two, you're going to start getting a very full explanation of how there can be black um, mm-hmm. character people in this, in this world that's supposed to be like super racist, <laughs> um, early 19th century England. And so the explanation itself starts making you think about it in a way I thought, this is weird because now you're going to start thinking every time you see one of, uh, you know, a, a, a Chinese extra, you're going to be like, well, are we going to get an explanation in season two, mm-hmm. which is already planned? I mean, is there going to have to be an explanation in each case? It's total alternative, alternative history. Yeah. I'm sure they must. They're probably going to have to give an explanation next season for the fact that the um, female love interest is going to be Indian. Yes. As, as according like to it's... recent casting news. So how they're going to get away with with that. Yes. Without giving some kind of equivalent explanation, I don't right. think it would be possible. So, and, and she, anyway, so she's describing what the logic of it. You know, apparently Queen Charlotte, King George's uh, the thirds. Uh, it is the third, but yeah, the third. Um, his his queen. You know, there was always there were rumors about her having some sort of African distant African descent. There were claims that she looked black. There was that there were rumors. So using that, they make her black. And then, of course, Emily's already explained how they, you know, how they use that notion um, to bring in a whole host of um, black characters. Um, you know, Doubt's argument is, if I'm saying her name right, 
you know, this is insane. They give an explanation where one of the aristocratic black characters, the woman who kind of semi-adopted the Duke um, in his childhood, um, she winds up saying love conquers all because the king fell in love with a black woman. And the black woman, of course, you know, this raises all of these other, the, the, sta- the, the social standing of all these other black characters. That's how love conquers all. And the Duke, of course, says it can all be taken away just as quickly as it was given. Love conquers nothing. So they have this exchange about this and you know mm-hmm. doubt is basically suggesting well love sure sure is apparently conquered all because it's a race channel slavery it's a race you know just absolute very prejudice and <laughs> it's gotten rid of you know something you could have you could have used that could have been a full you know kind of romance period romance kind of show which is the um uh the uh the uh, the only king of haiti is after the revolution a, a general Henri Christophe becomes this king for, I don't know, roughly 10 years that overlapped the, the 1830 Bridgerton. They have a fabulous palace, sumptuous balls, the whole thing. In Haiti, crisis strikes. He is deposed. He commits suicide. His son is killed. But the, but the mother and two teenage daughters escape, and they go, guess where? To London. And they mm. live with the famous abolitionist um, family um, for a while, but they cannot endure the level <laughs> Uh, of racism and they wind up going to the continent wind up living in italy for the rest of their lives but her point is you already have a story that seems to have so many of the elements you could to have that that woman and her daughters trying to be in english society or to start in haiti with with the sumptuous and she says well now that will probably never if even if it was ever going to be made probably never will because bridgerton has taken on you know, this is what it will look like to go back to 1813 and have black aristocrats and royals. Um, so they've kind of taken the spot that could have been for something <laughs> else. And she's just yeah. like, for her, she's challenging whether it's progress to have whiter than white characters, which distinguish Quinn's work, she argues. Um, and then just say, let's say some of them are black and throw in a kind <laughs> yeah. of, you know, a kind of absurd uh, historical explanation and then carry on from there. She's questioning whether we, why, why are we calling that progress? That seems so superficial. And if anything, it might be a regression um, in her view, <laughs> Hamilton is. Um, so, uh-huh. anyway, so there's this argument out there in which she yeah. just challenges the whole handling of race. Yeah. And I think, like, my initial reaction to this, like, very detailed historical, accurate, historically accurate account of what was actually going on in the time was just like, yeah, this person doesn't understand what the genre is. Um, But I sort of like doubled back on that in my mind. And I was like, well, why couldn't they have incorporated some of this real history? Like clearly they were at least claiming to try to do that with this whole Queen Charlotte thing. But to me, like knowing this genre as I do, I was sort of like, okay, this is like a vague bit of world building that's also a little bit virtue signally because they're like, yeah, there's this, grain of history that we picked up on the romance novels do this a lot where they take like grains of history to mm-hmm. show like we're interested in history but they're not yes. actually interested in like delving into that and making it historically realistic mm-hmm. it's all just to like build the world of the fantasy <clears throat> in a shallow enough way that you don't have to think too much about politics or but it is a question you know. to me like why not go full <laughs> shallow i don't understand why there there's any precision whatsoever why why yeah. say 1813 why why name the king and and his actual the name of the queen why why not and just say 
Queen, <laughs> yeah, Queen exactly. Anne, Queen King I'm sort of like, Bridgerton, you brought this on yourself. Like, why are you trying to be pretentious and be like, yeah, yes, this, it's part of the whole thing of like, they, they're, half of their mouth is saying, don't take this seriously, and don't half, worry, yeah. without going too far and making it actually like fun and mm-hmm. whimsical and enjoyable. And the other half is like, but this is very serious because we carry, you know, mm-hmm. As romance, the genre, we carry the moral righteousness of the world in some way. So we like we are good feminist people who know about history and en- enough to evoke it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think they didn't. So you get they, bragging. They were right. patting themselves on the oh, back, yes. I think, a little bit for yeah. not having it just be a race blind fantasy because they were like, look, we're hinting at the fact that you know. Black people can feel like they are taking on the burden of being excellent and all that sort of thing without delving too far into the the actual social implications of all of that and how it would color the entire world in a much different way mm-hmm. if that was really like he this Duke character would not be the only person who would be feeling that type of insecurity in this world if that was you know if they really wanted to make a believable feeling world that would be coloring everything that happens to all the person of color. Mm-hmm. characters you know and it would be sort of like pleasant pleasantville or something where they'd be like putting on a brave face for the white people to and gradually we'd realize that they'd all you know had these insecurities that could be interesting but i don't think that they'll ever do anything like that in the romance genre because there's this idea that like delving too far especially into issues of race is not fun anymore i think even for for black romance readers have said things along these lines too, where they feel like there's so many black stories where everything is just so weighted down with the seriousness of coping with racism that this sort of level of evocation of race is kind of typical in a way of romance novels written by and for black people in which there are also white characters and white love interests and it's not just all black people and that sort of well and we should we should note that you know this it's not it's not an all-white audience for even these all-white yeah. no, no 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 you know shonda rhimes who's the she's you know african-american she's a very hot producer hot in the in the terms of career-wise she's got a huge stellar career who was became infatuated with books loved these books got them made i'm sure she you know had, she's always it's always being talked about in the same breath with you know bringing having some of the characters now be black um I, you know my own husband's mother had a full collection of george ed hire and george ed mm-hmm. hire as far mm-hmm. as i know the little i know i've never been able to even read one um he kept them because she loved these books so much um and black woman um so she adored them and you know as far as i know george ed hire you know the genre or was and so, so it's not like, and even, you know, Mar- Marlena Doubt also says, she, I know, I know there's a, there's a, there's a, people of color also love these books for various reasons, but she still wants to take but carry on, sorry, I interrupted. I mean, I guess to me, it kind of just raises the question of like, are these, you know, I mean, I guess maybe the answer is yes, but like, are issues of racism which is you know such a reality of our world or Mm -hmm. of sexual harassment sexism which is such a reality of our world are they so fraught that we cannot incorporate them into a genre in which characters also have fun like is there no way to have that be part of a, a a world 
that we can look at now as people who want to enjoy a story and not have it be like completely serious and didactic and all about how, you know, we should care about the issues. Like, is there a way that we can make that part of the texture of a world that also is a fun romantic story? Well, that, I mean, you if know... you're just talking about genre at large, of course we can, but we've often done it very, very badly because genres don't <laughs> exist in a vacuum. Genre work. They're intimately related to what the public likes, wants, as far yeah. as filmmakers and TV producers, et cetera, can judge. They're desperately trying to feed you what you want, and then you vote with viewership, and then they try to give you more of what you want. So, yeah. but it has a pretty shameful history. <laughs> I mean, look at the action films straining to find villains. Um, and for a while, not mm. straining so hard because you just automatically yeah. always make them people of color, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then, you know, who, who's the villain du jour? Well, if Japan is ascending as perhaps the, the number one economic force in the world, you're suddenly going to get a whole rash of, of anti-Japanese um, um, action films which we did. Yeah. Um, so finding the villain, you know, in other <laughs> so words, so genres no, good at tapping into the id and absolutely. playing up to racism. But I guess like my question is if the audience the other clearly wants, clearly wants to be woke, like that's clearly a, mm. a market demand yeah. right now. But like the way that, that genre has tried to approach this, at least in the case of romance, it seems like is mm -hmm. doing this like colorblind or semi-colorblind thing. Like, is there a way... Or in this case, not colorblind, or you're yeah, right, se yeah. I guess semi. It's still semi, we don't know. The jury's out on how, how not it's going to be, but go on. I guess I'm just curious if there's any possible way that we can just, like... I, it, it comes down to what you so much say, right? Is that there, there's, like, movies that are supposed to be enjoyable that are kind of devoid of any type of content or substance and then there's like very heavy very substantial films that deal with real issues but i guess my and point I, is even the ones that ha seem to have quote-unquote no substance they they still they're just they're still ideologically completely freighted no one thinks about it at all I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah and they yeah, haven't yeah. done anything to address it but you, in other words someone's got to be the hero and has to have certain qualities attached and someone's got to be the villain and has certain qualities attached and these are always going to reflect where the culture is and test these mm -hmm. things out. Yeah. All you have to do is go back to a, a, an earlier era you don't know or another culture's genre works. Be completely flummoxed. And go, oh, wait, is that <laughs> supposed to be the good person? <laughs> I hate that guy. Or, or whatever. And find out how estranged you are and how, you know, there's reasons why genres don't survive or don't translate into other cultures. Because mm -hmm. they're reflecting all sorts of values. Yeah. That's what makes them fascinating. One of the things that makes them fascinating to study. Whether that can be fun, usually they're fun. But you're right, we are in an era of increasingly, consciously trying to, unfortunately, I guess the only word we can use is get woke, the only phrase. <laughs> um, and it can seem very heavy-handed, but there's also this kind of confounding halfway measure that, that does stop you and make you go, yeah. well, what's the, what's the project? What's the project yeah. here? I mean, I guess I'm also just thinking this isn't, I feel like, the thing that I'm imagining could happen doesn't feel that far away to me. Like I was reading this fantasy book, actual mm -hmm. fantasy with magic, um, which is called Sorcerer to the Crown, which has a very similar premise. There's people of color in the Regency world um, and it's fun. They're having fun and doing mm -hmm. magic. Um, it's a genre, but there's a lot of commentary about like, you know, the, the Sorcerer to the Crown title character mm -hmm. is a black child who was adopted by white people and they talk about the 
sort of complicated mm-hmm. relationship that he has with his white family. Mm-hmm. The romantic interest is a half Indian, half white woman. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think it's perfect necessarily, but it's acknowledging racial dynamics throughout the whole show, not just as like a throwaway mm-hmm. yeah. kind of one-time thing. And it's still fun. And then oh, like, right. the, and-, and it's building the racial stuff into the controversy of the whole world and the mm-hmm. conflict of the whole story. But it's still fun. Well, and I'm just and like, I know, can we not handle this? I would watch so much more of that if this was a thing. But. Well, and from what little I know, I really, I haven't read a lot of sci-fi fantasy. My husband was a devotee and read everything. And it, it seems like that was always much more possible just because you were, it, you were thrown into the world of the possible, the yeah. world of the future. You were sort of being asked to posit how things could go, what things could look like. And that seemed to lend itself um, to you're still being true to the genre in a way that's really fun, but you're actually, you're actually taking on um, social issues and problems mm-hmm. and ways of represent representational issues in ways that, that are adventurous and perhaps anyway, progressive. They're going to regret. seems like certain yeah. genres in short lent themselves more. The Western yeah. did not. <laughs> I think we can safely say, <laughs> you know, revisionism, you know, if you look at revisionist Westerns, pretty much they're critiquing the classic Western in various ways, the racial dynamic, American, destiny. but it's very hard to completely rethink the Western, given, given its basic pillars of the form in such a way that it can be forward thinking. It's just not a forward thinking form, which is one reason yeah. why they make one every three or four to five years and it fails. So, yeah. Anyway. So maybe I don't want Bridgerton to be a romance anymore. I want it to be a different genre and I want it to be a fantasy. <laughs> and I want them to put yeah. more effort into their world building and just make the world, like, lean into the world being different and crazy instead of being. Well, that's my question like, is whether the, the basic pillars of the genre, which we've already talked about, are so in the way that it's going to be hard not to simply tack on wokeness. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult to. to to eradicate the basically you know, troubling premises that you always have to work your way around. That's the question. Can you save the Regency romance? <laughs> that is a good question. Terms. I would really like to see it reinvented. I don't think like taking a Regency romance that was written in the 90s and tacking on wokeness was necessarily the best idea. Clearly some people like it. Like mm-hmm. Clearly it hit enough checked enough of the boxes. Well, sadly, if they hadn't, and, I have to admit, they wouldn't have had the guy who played the Duke. What's his name? Reget. He has a very <laughs> lovely name, and I, I've meant to I memorize know. it, and I can't remember, He's but anyway. Great, though. <laughs> gorgeous! We wouldn't have had him. So we, we, we can put it, put it in terms of enjoyment. <laughs> and I have, yeah, I have to say, he did a really great job. He, I think a lot of the performers did better with like, I could have imagined Bridgerton being a lot worse if performances, certain performances had been different than how they mm-hmm. were. Because just looking at the script, there's not a lot there. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine <laughs> the cringe factor going even further up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, you could always, there were certain things you could always kind of beguile yourself with. You're right. Certain people who were kind of charming or a pleasure somehow. Yeah, that's right. Because, yeah, but, um, boy, the look of it, that was a killer for me. And. Uh, which uh, yeah was to- so totally intentional i was like okay i definitely see what you're doing with these hideous costumes the f- i mean the like, they, there's some people there's online who are like mooning over the costumes oh, yeah they're, they're they're supposed to be ridiculous they're supposed I'm, to be awful looking yeah, but yeah. ironically but so it's much like you can barely tell the difference between their 
There's, they have to be so ridiculous to yes. make up for the fact that like everyone else is semi-ridiculous. Or... <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. But clearly that that was like their main way of signaling to the audience, like, please don't evaluate us as a real historical. Yeah, because yeah, I kept thinking CGI has to have advanced since this. I mean, there are CGI <laughs> shots in there that are so crudely done, so badly done. And you can tell this is a lavish show. There's money here. That I was just like shocked. Like, come on. <laughs> there's no way we're not better at this by now. <laughs> so I think you're right. It's a, there's a, it's a signaling of, yeah. of archness. And it's kind falseness. of signaling like, yeah. I guess it's signaling like, don't think about this too hard or like, relax. This is just for fun. Yeah, in such it's a such way artifice. That, like, you don't have to get uptight. Yeah, there's even a, yeah. a candy colored tree with the title Bridgerton. It's in it's, yep. it's all the colors and it's so fantasy tree-like in a Disney way that it's like, I think it's, you're right. I think that they, they were marketers as usual in the, in this godforsaken culture, usually very talented, <laughs> often more talented than the people actually who are filmmakers they, yeah. and they get it. And they, and their job is to, how do we sell this to people and signal everything that needs to be signaled so they can enjoy it. And they really found proper. Yeah. And I just, I guess I wish that we were in a slightly ever so slightly more adventurous time where we could just dial up the fantasy to such an extent that it feels like fantasy and oh, isn't yeah. so like just think about the great which is exactly what they did i loved that mm. show the great yeah which is that, that outright was like a, funny exactly. and insane yeah 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 That's and that more. of course like does do the weird colorblind casting thing which somehow like works and is fine and they don't right. talk about you know racial dynamics because that's not like a part of that universe like and it has an insane everyone's color Russian, scheme. no matter what race they are. <laughs> it has an insane color scheme, though it's a beautiful color scheme. But still, yes. it's, it does the stylized thing to the point that it alerts you to the tone. Yeah, so yeah, I'm in the in the great camp for sure. Um, yes, but it can't. Yeah, make a romance a good that's example. like the great. Someone. Yeah, it's a good example <laughs> of what you can do with the period. Well, it wasn't quite a romance. I don't know what you. Yeah, period. Yeah. Period satire. Period. I don't even know what you call the great. Yeah, whatever it is, it's great, and we love it. I want, I want the romance <laughs> genre to turn into whatever that is. <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Emily. This has really helped. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm freeing myself from these mm. books. I'm gonna try and check out. There's a couple um, recent novels that are like chick lit meets Regency romance that I'm oh. gonna see if they're any better. I can report back to you on that. <laughs> I'm now I'm now morbidly fascinated like you are. Oh <laughs> I actually want to know. It's like a disease that it I'm is, spreading. Disease. I actually felt that it had done things to my brain and not good things. After I was done, I'd watched so many episodes in a row, you know, to catch up. <laughs> that I'm like, my. If God. you want to feel better about yourself, you should watch um, Emily in Paris and realize just how much worse that even oh, is. Really? And you'll see, <laughs> that'll be like the bottom of the barrel of oh, content, and, and then, then I'd you appreciate. Can watch some, then watch good something point. good, and then like. <laughs> You're right. Give and that would an exorcism. That would, that would balance me again. <laughs> yes. Well, all right. That's it for today. Thank you, Emily, for thrashing out the madness that is Bridgerton and this crazy. Thank you. I feel genre. like this was a therapy session. I really, it kind of was. <laughs> and thanks again to our listeners, especially our invaluable subscribers. If you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the film talk content uh, instead of just the half that is available publicly. Um, join us next time um, for when Dolores and I will be tackling the film Nomadland, which stars um, the incomparable Frances McDormand. It's just premiered on Hulu. It's earning many award nominations, and we're going to be considering that 
as well as the recent essay rant, some of you might have read, it's in Harper's by Barton Scorsese, who's lamenting the way the art of cinema is being devalued and subsumed within the, the all-purpose horrifying word content. Um, so we're going to draw those two things together. That episode will be available on Tuesday, March 9th. And until then, um, you know, thanks again for joining us. Film sucks. Fabulous February. Bye. <laughs> until next time. Bye.